When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by the new ABC series, American Crime. This March, one crime will affect so many lives. From the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave comes the year's most extraordinary drama. American Crime premieres Thursday, March 5th, 10, 9 central on ABC. And by HBO, presenting the new documentary series, The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. There's no wrong way to use a margarita pool edition. It's Wednesday, March 4th, 2015. On today's show, The Last Man on Earth is a new sitcom starring Will Forte. It's on Fox, and it has quite the intriguing premise. And then the Norwegian novelist Carl Ovenausgaard was hired by the New York Times magazine to drive through parts of America and produce a de Tocqueville-style rumination. It has appeared. It's strange and a kind of hoaxy tour de force. We'll discuss. And finally, the weird viral phenomenon known simply as the dress. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. All right. Well, before we start the show for reals, uh, Julia, we have some business. Okay. Yes. Two pieces of business today, Steve. First, I need to let our listeners know about our Slate Plus segment. Dan Angber, sometime Culture Fest guest, wrote a piece for Vulture in which he argued that TV is turning us all into boring people because talking about television is inane and stupid and is ruining dinner parties around the land, or at least around him. So we will tackle that topic. Does TV make you boring in our Slate Plus segment? And if you want to become a Slate Plus member so you can listen to these and other Slate Plus Culture Fest segments, you should go to slate.com slash culture plus. I also want to let our listeners know about Panoply. Andy Bowers has been cooking up a delicious podcast bouillabaisse that he is ready to unleash upon the world. Our parent organization, The Slate Group, has just launched a brand new podcast network called Panoply. Panoply is going to feature the existing stable of Slate podcasts, including this one, and then also a whole host of brand new podcasts that we are creating with other media outlets, authors, thinkers, personalities, all sorts of interesting and exciting names have been through our doors over the last few weeks. So we're very excited for you to encounter these podcasts as they go live. The new shows include The Ethicists from The New York Times Magazine, Inc. Uncensored from Inc., a TV podcast from Vulture, and more from other partners, including Real Simple, The Huffington Post, Popular Science, and the FX drama, The Americans. You'll be able to hear all the Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, all the other podcast apps. And to check out the first offerings right now, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply. All right, guys, how do you guys feel about being part of a Panoply? I'm up for it. I've already listened to a couple of shows on this network, and there's a lot to explore. I remember learning the word panoply as a child. I read Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad, and I wrote down all the words I didn't know in it as a like little nerd kid exercise, and I learned the word panoply from that book specifically, I remember. It's like when mm. you lose on a word in a spelling bee, it's burned into your brain forever. Ugh. I only ever was in one spelling bee, 
and I lost on the I lost on the word cherry for not repeating the thing, not saying cherry, C-H-E-R-Y, cherry. So annoying. Uh, Always with my problems following the rules. What word did you lose on, Dana? Well, it was a tragic story because I won my school spelling bee, then I won my district spelling bee. I was at the city spelling bee in the fourth grade, which would have sent me to state and then to nationals, right? So basically I was like halfway there. And I misspelled the word conundrum, which is spelled exactly like it sounds, but which, and everyone there can attest to this, was pronounced conundrum with a Texas accent Ah. by the woman who read the word. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, were you ever in a spelling bee? I never was, though. I have to say, Dan, I think your progress to the national finals has to be expressed as a log function. So I find it hard to credit the fact that you were halfway there. Also, I wanted this podcast network to be called Alagapale, but I'm okay with Panoply. That's fine. All right, let's move on. The Last Man on Earth is a new sitcom on Fox. It stars Will Forte as Phil Miller, a man living in a world otherwise completely depopulated by a mysterious virus. The year is 2022, and Phil heads to Tucson, holes up in a McMansion, where he can wallow all day in scarcity value goods like expensive wine and old master art, and divert himself by plundering malls or driving cars into other cars to watch them blow up. Dana, this is an improbable premise for a sitcom in the sense that one wouldn't think to premise a sitcom on this post-apocalyptic comedy with an extremely limited cast of characters. Uh, what you think of uh, what do you think of the pilot and the second episode? And do you think that the concept can sustain itself? As for the concept sustaining itself, I think we have to wait and see. Every time we weigh in on a TV show early, it seems like we're wrong. But I'm pretty excited about this show. It has a really good pedigree. It comes from um, Chris Miller and Philip Lord, who are the Lego men creators, Lego movie creators, and also um, made the Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs movies and sort of seem like they're on a roll right now where they can do any project they want. And what they've chosen to do, along with Will Forte, who's one of the producers and I think wrote the first episode as well, is this post-apocalyptic sitcom, which is not a zombie show, right? It's not a post-apocalyptic world in which horrible monsters are coming to eat Will Forte's face. It's just a world in which he seems to be completely alone in the world, at least until the end of the first episode where, slight spoiler alert, although this is all over the press coverage of the show, he does meet who is apparently the last woman on Earth, played by Christian Schaal. So it seems like what it's going to be is a sort of Adam and Eve sitcom about these two very dissimilar people trying to rebuild humanity together. And based on the first two episodes, I thought it was pretty damn funny. I mean, I was I was impressed with the production value quality, the fact that it sort of feels like a film in a way that sitcoms often don't. It's a single camera sitcom that, you know, sort of follows Forte everywhere. And uh, Forte is really, really funny in it. And um, yeah, I think it's a really promising start. It definitely doesn't feel like a Fox show. I mean, it's like a network sitcom, which I think is probably a testament to the pedigree of its creators who, in addition to all the credits you mentioned, are behind Jump Street's 21 and 22. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Like it looks it looks like a film. It looks kind of indie. It looks like the sort of thing you'd find on a premium cable network or, you know, in the FX family somewhere. And it's just, you know, it's just there on Fox, like same progenitor of the new girl and the Mindy project. And it does not feature like hipsterly clad people in their lofts and their offices having sex with each other like it 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 features like a lonely man in a desert landscape and empty deserted convenience stores i admired this but i cannot say that i'm going to make a ton of room for it on my limited tv watching roster i'm not like the the fundamental lonely abysmalness of it to me may have outweighed the yuck factor 
I don't know. Steve, what did you think? Am I, am I, I mean, I love the creative team behind it. I admire everything that they've done. Everything they do is genuinely clever. I mean, not just funny, but clever. Uh, and this is too. And I agree with you, Dana, that we're always wrong. Like by its nature, one will almost always be wrong pronouncing on what a TV show might be from the tiny little germ of its pilot. And so we proceed cautiously. That said, part of the pleasure of consuming any narrative is having a kind of forward anticipatory motion, you know, inherent in your interest in what's happening at the you know exact present moment. And in this, I kept being amused by the present moment and I kept not feeling that anticipatory tingle in a way. However, I mean, that can work the other way, which is I'm just damn curious to know how are they going to pull this off? I mean, they have an idea of how they're going to do it. They didn't. They didn't think only you know four hours of programming ahead, and Fox didn't buy it uh, based on a show bible that only described three or four you know clever gimmicky episodes. So they have some concept of where this is going to go. There's already a really interesting contrast, which is you know his response to being the last man on earth is to let himself go almost completely to kind of revel in the total liberty of it uh, and then discover that that's vacuous and kind of horrible and existentially stranding and the last woman on earth's coping mechanism is to maintain absurdly all of her rigidity so to stop her car uh, at stop signs maintain her tomato patch and yet this may be a recipe for sanity that he's lacking so it's it's interesting and smart I'm incredibly curious to see where it goes. The performers are tremendous. The writing is very good. I mean, it sort of has everything going for it, except my sense that, you know, that I'll you follow it watch out. watch it? <laughs> well, except my sense that, that, you know, except my sense of like, oh, I mean, look, when you discover that, you know, the Nebishi chemistry teacher, Mr. White, is going to team up with his, uh, you know, fuck up stu- ex-student uh, druggie, Jesse Pinkman, and together they're going to, you know, dip their toe in the waters of, of breaking bad, you know, they're going to break bad a little bit or whatever you sense like, okay, I sort of see, especially as it started to get going, you were like, I can see where this can go over the arc of like four or five, six seasons. And, and, you know, midway through the first season, you don't know exactly how he's going to take this journey to becoming a, you know, a conscience free crime Lord, but you're, 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 you're tugged along, not only through each individual episode by its inherent dramatic, you know, uh, scenario, but, but by this idea of like, I'm, I'm embarking on this journey. And it's like, at this point, I have no clue what journey I'm embarking on, but I'm curious to see how smart people resolve that. It's interesting. The thing you describe is sort of reminding me of the thing that's happened in sports lately, where people have gone from identifying with and following the players to identifying and following the GMs, right? Like, it's less like, oh, is my favorite pitcher gonna strike them out today? And more like, well, with the new, like, targeted algorithm, they're, they've they really got this new strategy of the sort of guy they're going to get. And I wonder how the, like, owners are going to pull it off, even though they don't have a huge salary budget. Like, maybe they can beat those big-time teams from NYC. Like, doesn't there seem like there's a little bit of an element that here, like, oh, these incredibly cre- <laughs> clever creators, like, they've set themselves... It, it's like watching Houdini or David Degree Blaine. Degree of difficulty, right? I agree, though. I love your interpolation of uh, the inner dialogue of the average sports viewing male. <laughs> I wonder if we can beat those teams from NYC. Isn't that how you? Isn't that what? You, <laughs> wasn't that just my window into your mind, Steve? No, but like, but I, but I agree. It. There's sort of like a creative question here of like, whoa, this is they're doing like the 
the okay, I'm mixing my sports metaphors. I'm going to avoid the diving metaphor I was at, about to go for. But they've basically taken an incredibly high concept, right? The joke, I wouldn't fuck you if you were the last man on earth, if you were the last woman on earth, and turned it into a show. So we've got the last man and woman on earth. They seem cosmically unsuited for one another. Uh, and the challenge dramatically is they have to make both participants unpleasant enough or misfit enough that you believe in their fundamental like hatred and friction and then they're not just like you know doing it within 30 minutes of meeting each other but then also likable enough that you a root for them to not just die like everybody else and b maybe root for them to have some kind of relationship um and it also makes very plain the kind of shipping thing that happens when you watch a show and by shipping I'm using the fan TV term for like hoping that a couple of characters get together in a romantic way but like the fate of the human race lies upon you shipping these characters (laughs) and I'm eventually falling in love so the stakes are somewhat high except for since the human race is already mostly dead, like, eh, why not have it just peter out entirely? Like, the stakes seem both high and low at the same time. But there's a lot we still don't know about this 2021 post-apocalyptic world. Like, I don't quite grasp yet. Are there are there animals? Has there been widespread economic, um, I mean, agricultural devastation? You know, are there, in fact, other people on Earth that they'll eventually come across sort of zombie land style as they make their way through the world? I mean, if this show has seasons or a season in front of it, you know, all kinds of new things could come to the fore. Yeah, I sort of hope they find, like, four or five more characters and then maybe I'll watch in season two. I was just feeling a little claustrophobic with just those two. All right, well, wait a second. Before we go any further, let's listen to... I've, I've shirked my hostly duties here. Let's listen to a clip. I can't wait to see your house. They say a person's home is a reflection of their soul. So this is my toilet pool. <laughs> and here's my garbage pool. And uh, this is my margarita pool. You swim in that? I swim in it, I drink out of it. There's really no wrong way to use a margarita pool. You know what I mean? Work your way through here. Sorry, it's kind of messy right now. What a collection of cans. Oh, where'd you get all these paintings? You know, I took them from uh, various museums. Uh, I got some Van Goghs and Monet's. In that pile alone, there's like a billion dollars worth of famous paintings. So you stole all these paintings? What? No, no. Plus, I take very good care of this stuff. Oh, oh, shoot. Uh, I better dry this baby off. There we go. Dry as new. Sorry, Rembrandt. And in case it wasn't clear from the audio, that's the Will Forte character showing Kristen Schaal his squalid mansion full of old master paintings and dinosaur skulls and a uh, a little wading pool filled with margarita. (laughs) That he both lies in and drinks from. While salting the edge. I love that detail. (laughs) There are a lot of great details here. All right. So we should say that it it debuted very strong. It it uh, drew something like close to 6 million viewers and won the coveted 18 to 49 demographic, which gave Fox a big win on Sunday night, if one cares about such things. But it's interesting, right, that a a show with such an... you know, sort of unlikely premise pulled... Like, what, what was it about this that pulled in the big audience? And to me, I suspect it was the very unusualness, you know, the simplicity, the sort of vaguely sci-fi sitcom side. It, it, it doesn't seem like, you know, your usual family around a couch or workplace kind of sitcom. And maybe people were just drawn to the freshness of that. Well, and also the biggest phenomenon on TV right now is The Walking Dead. I mean, that's a show that has insane numbers. So there is a massive TV watching audience that really loves 
watching post-apocalyptic people run around. And I'm a person who doesn't watch that show because of all the grisly dead bodies that lie down and then come up and try and eat you. And this is like all the fun of the apocalypse with no dead bodies. There's not even inert dead bodies. Like you'd think everyone who died of this virus that gets briefly mentioned would be like rotting all over the place. But all the corpses seem to have been vaporized. So it's very, it's a very antiseptic apocalypse. Yeah, it's no must, no fuss. It's, yeah. Um, but I, Dana, I was looking for a deep dive. What is it about now that we've made fully made the transition to the fantasy of a world in which only I am real? I mean, just following up on the thought a little bit, I mean, Will Forte is tremendously gifted and terrific comedic actor, but I just don't think that he was what drew six million people to this show, um, nor just the sheer unusualness of the premise. I think it has something to do with being in a zombie moment. I mean, being there's something about the fantasy that only I, this first person thing, exists that is appealing to people the way being ravished by a sexy vampire was appealing to them five, ten years ago, and you couldn't, you know, swing a, you know, dead cat garlic without clove. hitting a garlic clove. Thank you, without hitting a vampire narrative. And now we're in the same moment for, you know all other egos have disappeared from the uh, universe other than mine. It's, I mean, I, I really admire it. I, I will check in back in on the show. I mean, I think Will Forte is great. I love the idea that maybe just millions of people were drawn to the show because of their deep fandom of the film Nebraska. But he was really great in Nebraska. <laughs> Can I tell my Will Forte Nebraska story? Yeah. Which is part of why I just have this huge crush on Will Forte and I'll watch anything he does forever. It's just that after a some kind of um, screening of, of Nebraska, he was there and Bruce Dern was there and they were sort of greeting people. And, you know, everybody was having these very cocktail party conversations and then drifting onto the next person. And I got into this great, great chat with Will Forte, where we started talking about the filming of, uh, of, of Nebraska. And I asked if they had, when they visited Mount Rushmore, if they had actually visited and, you know, had some time to explore. And then he was fascinated with Mount Rushmore and started talking about Gutzon Borglum, who's the, <laughs> the sculptor who created the mountain, and then about this other Native American Mount Rushmore that's being constructed and has been in construction for like 100 years nearby in South Dakota. Anyway, he was just, he was like a real fascinating, interesting guy. And I remember going out of that conversation thinking, that guy's going to go places, like not just as a performer, but as some kind of creator of content, because he just, he's, he's got a lot on his brain. Huh. Maybe they'll take a field trip to Mount Rushmore later in the show. Mm. Well, the show is uh, Last Man on Earth. Uh, I, I, my final word on it is that I, I kind of love that hidden in it, I believe, is the thesis, hell is not other people. Uh, it's inevitably going to go someplace interesting. So let us know what you think of it. Come to us at facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you think. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? Yes, it is time to hear about our first sponsor this week. And that is American Crime, a new drama from ABC. American Crime is a show about one offense that sends shockwaves through a community, shattering families and igniting a media frenzy in a powerful, thought-provoking, and timely series. It comes from the Oscar-winning screenwriter of 12 Years a Slave and stars Felicity Huffman and Timothy Hutton. This is American Crime premiering on Thursday, March 5th at 10, 9 central on ABC. All right, moving on. If there was one thing I had been looking forward to, and had intended to base my article on. It was the sound of adventure that American place names evoked. So writes the Norwegian novelist Carl Ovenausgaard in his new, somewhat behemoth, New York Times Magazine article, in which he was tasked with traveling through America as de Tocqueville had 
a few hundred years before him, and writing as a, a foreigner and as a European about the experience of encountering the United States. He goes on to say, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, all my life, I'd kept encountering them, and when I saw them in writing, vast spaces opened up within me. The names were romantic, exotic, distant, and yet so close, so strange, but still familiar. This is what I'd really wanted to write about, what this almost mythological landscape was like in reality. It was supposed to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Now there was nothing left of any of that. Julia, this is a big, sprawling piece designed for impact. It, it, it accompanies the relaunch of the New York Times magazine. Reactions to it were bound to be diverse, but they've been really diverse. I mean, there are people who think that this is a, a an absolutely brilliant piece of literary travelogue. And then Katie Waldman for Slate says, no way, this is, this is a kind of a bit of a joke. What did you make of it? Oh, I had so many different responses to this piece. I mean, so there's there's many levels on which it exists, right? One, it exists as a marker of the kind of ambitions of the newly relaunched New York Times magazine, which uh, has a new editor as of less than a year ago and was relaunched with much fanfare two weekends ago. And then this past weekend, they put Carl Nausgaard on the cover doing a Tocqueville-style tour of America. Like, that's a big, ambitious, fun thing for a magazine to do. Like, let's get one of the most compelling novelists of our day and send him on an expensive lark assignment and see what happens. And uh, I think the piece had its intended impact in that regard, because a bunch of literary and magazine fan types were like, ooh, crazy, cool, unusual. Um, And that, no doubt, was part of the intended result. So as a piece of magazine assigning, kudos, it gets points. Uh, Then there's the question, what is it as a piece of writing? Uh, And for me, it serves as an introduction to Nausgaard. He's been much bandied about, and his novels are apparently both very compelling and very boring and very interesting, and I've heard lots about them, and very long. And this combination of signifiers that has emitted out to me through the discussions of people who have actually read them have made me put it on the list of things to read at some point, but not imminently. Uh, So I haven't read them yet. So it was my first encounter with his prose. And as an introduction to that, I found it compelling. He's really funny. He's like really funny in this really your mopey way. He's hilarious. And it makes me want to read more. I, I liked this as an encounter with his writing. I had to carve out a chunk of time to read it, but I liked it as an introduction to his work. And it didn't bother me too much that he didn't seem that interested in America because he was funny and I enjoyed spending time in his brain. Uh, Dana, I'm curious to hear your reaction to it where where were you on the spectrum of it was a kind of a tour de force or it was kind of a a send-up i guess i align myself with katie waldman in the sense that i have a negative opinion of this piece but not necessarily because it fails as travel writing it seems obvious that it's meant to be this kind of a, a a spoof or deconstruction or some refusal basically to do a travel piece it really is the story of a man an incurious man uh, stuck in his hotel room, sort of um, letting the days pass by and not feeling sure why he's embarked on this trip in the first place. I haven't read any of Nausgaard's books and have had this ongoing puzzlement that a lot of you know very literary and smart friends of mine are loving and enjoying this book that to me just sounds like so solipsistic and boring. And, uh, and, and, and I guess I just feel this sort of resentment that like Carl Ova Nausgaard is now internationally famous for just nattering on endlessly about himself. And of course, that's an unfair judgment to make of the books, given that I haven't read them. But reading this piece, I felt completely vindicated in my opinion. I found <laughs> oh, him really boo. incurious, utterly boring. He makes a couple of really cliched observations about America, like everyone's 
fat at the buffet. Or like okay, well, Canada first of all, he's not even America. in America when he makes that. Okay, Canada, North America, whatever. But his 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 observations just just feel like this very warmed over like Pierre Bourdieu or something. I don't know, but with less affect. I mean, there are moments when he's funny just because of his his sheer sort of helplessness and disorganization. But a part of me did read this as if I was his assigning editor at the New York Times Magazine, saying, "What the hell, Carl? What are you doing, lying on a bed reading a book about the Vikings, wasting our money when you're supposed to be?" learning something and saying something interesting. I mean, kill me, sue me. I just, I would like a a piece that tells me something that I didn't know before. Well, and he also does note in the piece that he was assigned this piece for the launch issue, but it did not appear in the launch issue. It is now (laughs) the cover of the second second post-relaunch issue. So um, that may or may not tip one's hand as to what the editors thought of this copy when it was turned in. I mean, I understand that this is sort of the whole point. It just gets on my nerves. Like, even looking at the illustrations right now, I'm looking at one of the photographic illustrations, the lobby of the Hampton Inn and Suites in St. John's, Newfoundland, the, the hotel that he's stuck in for all this time waiting for his paperwork to come through. And it's this deliberately banal shot of this little corner with a vacuum cleaner with a cord wound around it. I just sort of feel like, we get it, right? Mm. You are experiencing well, banality. But that's the problem is you didn't get it because this is a fucking tour to force it's an incredible piece of writing and uh, you know okay first a couple things let's before i paint myself into the inevitable corner here and uh and and you know uh raise the inevitable ire let me remind people where we first heard about nascar on our show it was from megan o'rourke who you know um international literatus uh megan o'rourke came in she said she was completely immersed in them completely obsessed by them so before I'm accused of over-identifying with a grumpy, middle-aged, child-addled, self-involved, solipsistic, middle-aged, priapic, (laughs) overly literary jackass. No, um, I'm not not contesting the lots of smart literary people love his books. Okay, true, you acknowledge that, but I just want to say as a premise that, that one can be that and love him and not be that and love him. And I think he's doing something, first of all, he's doing something utterly unique with the novel, which is he's, first of all, it's a confessional in some ways. It's, he decided to be, to to make himself completely naked, but to a purpose, which was to say that to some degree, all of us in the overeducated, affluent West right now have this inner sense of thwarted grandiosity um, and it har- and some new version of the superego harangues us endlessly about who we have not turned out to be and it seems to be almost a symptom of modern life perhaps brought on by the media having grown up with the media who knows what it is but inside us is this hectoring inner self that wonders why our outer life is so crushingly disappointing relative to our inner grandiosity he's not in any way countenancing that inner grandiosity. In fact, it's a source of enormous human misery. But he was the first one to confess that as the, you know, coffee, wet coffee filter rips and the grounds fall all over your kitchen floor, you don't just say, fuck, I now have to clean up the coffee grounds. You say, where the fuck did all of this go wrong, right? And it's this disjunction of inner and outer, you know, inner aims and outer reality for which he is a kind of genius. And I just want to be clear, like, like I understand some people don't have, you know, solipsistic grandiose inner thoughts and some people do just clean up the coffee grounds. I don't think that that's the point, right? I mean, 
I think enough of us out there feel some version of what he's saying that to be the first one to write a kind of Samuel Pepys style, almost minute by minute recounting of how you end up there over the course of a human life was was more than it was novel in the sense that novels are meant to be novel. It was a new way of expressing a reality that more people had in common than 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 was suspected. Um, that said, I think that this is a continuation of that project. Uh, and it's utterly brilliant. I mean, I just don't understand how, yes, it's true in his ineptitude and uh, and his uh, propensity to sort of Scandinavian propensity to solitude. It's a piece v- very much about his own preoccupation with how the Vikings um, came to the New World, uh, settled here for a while and then re- retreated and what kind of remnant they left Um and what a kind of belated, pathetic figure he is relative to their, you know, uh, uh, hardihood and and independence. Um, But it's also, you know, there are these soliloquies about about the United States that do, in fact, mirror us back to us in this, to my mind, totally fresh and interesting way. The the comparison, for example, I mean, the whole piece to me is worth it alone for the comparison between Nabokov and Kerouac. And, And it's a very astute reading of, you know, Nabokov, who's sort of the most European consciousness to be forced to encounter, I mean, unremittingly European and un American consciousness forced to confront the phone innocence and naivete of the new world, uh, you know, by historical circumstances and how he did it through this alter ego of Humbert, uh, you know, the pervert Humbert and then Kerouac, who's sort of the perfect expression of, um, of, of that kind of primitivism and naivete as an exultant, uh, you know, Whitman-esque self-celebration. And he, you know, just over and over and over again, I feel like through the scrim of his own, melancholy and um you know sort of doofiness over literary doofiness he he makes these observations that have an almost insane lucidity to them about what we are who we are i have such mixed feelings about everything you just said i i think your point about the disjunct between outer and inner life is really smart. And that's part of what I enjoyed about this piece and part of what I enjoyed the candor of it. And I mean, I'm a person who hates brooders. I hate brooders. And we've talked about this in the context of such literary greats as both Hamlet and Raskolnikov. Like I just am not interested in people wringing their hands about shit all the time. And there's something about this that is like focused on inner melancholy, but very, um, like confident in its own lameness, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like he's very assured in his description of his own emotions and he understands where they are ridiculous and sends himself up a little bit and yet doesn't do it in the self-deprecating way of please give me credit for how deprecating I'm being about my peccadilloes. There's some sort of solidness in his in his self that's like very comforting to be around. I don't know. I totally under, I want to hear Dana say more because I understand how you could read this and be like, come on, dude, get off of it. But somehow it won me over. (laughs) I guess. I mean, it's obvious he's a, he's a knowledgeable guy when he does a little moment of like historical or literary kind of reading or performance. It's, it's interesting, but it's, it's just buried in these, this, this flab of kind of self investigation in the hotel room. I mean, I guess I just have no patience with somebody who got paid by the New York Times to go somewhere interesting and sat in a hotel room the whole time. It's just boring. But he doesn't sit, Dana, I, I'm, have you read the piece? He doesn't sit in the hotel room the whole time. Well, he goes around with a photographer refusing to talk to anyone, refusing to look at anything, 
or see anything interesting out the window. I mean, it just seems like he's so he's so entrenched in the sort of drab experience that he plans to have on this journey that he never tries to have any other one. Mm. Yeah, I mean, maybe a part of me was just resentful, like, where's my fancy junket where I get to lie around in a hotel room and be shy and read? <laughs> and then get a cover of the New York Times magazine for it. I guess oh I have to write Lord. six volumes about I, coffee grounds first. <laughs> and you, you object to solipsism on what basis? <laughs> wow. All right. Well, we're in not in agreement about the article, but more importantly, we're not in, in agreement about how long the article is. It apparently seemed longer to some of us than to others of us. But um, So I came in with a guess. I think this is an 8K-er, and Julia uh, threw right back at me, no way. You said it was, what, 5,500? I don't know. Yeah. 58. All right, so we've come up with, let's come up with an over-under of 6,800 words. I take the over. Julia, you're... You're under. taking the under. Dana, where are you coming I'll down? put myself under too. I'll put myself under. I, part of it is just that I read it I read it last night after a week of people talking about how long it was. And it is oh. I did laugh when I finally picked up the magazine and looked at the cover and it was my saga comma part one. The second half drops <laughs> in two weeks. <laughs> but um but but then I found the reading experience to be brisker than I expected based on the hullabaloo. So it's entirely an expectations game. But let's get the answer from the booth. Lindsay, how many words is it? It is 10,500. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, props to Carl for uh, for making, you know, fishing his own excrement out of a Canadian toilet. Just zing by. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, we probably have done some justice Have we spoken 10,000 words about this piece yet? I think we might be there. I think it may, the time may be to move on. All right, well, the piece is called My Saga, comma, Part One uh, by the no- uh, Norwegian novelist Carl Ovenausgaard. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. Uh, I loved it. Dana reviled it. Julia was somewhere in between. We'd love to hear what you think. So come to Facebook.com and tell us. I really like being Call- on the sidelines during a Steve Dana knockdown drag out. <laughs> well, I will say this says nothing about his novel. His novel could still be great. I just think that this is a self indulgent piece of journalism, of like stunt journalism. All right, last word to Dana. What's next, Steve? <laughs> oh, Jesus. Mine, I just, I'm just going to heave a heavy sigh of pity, and then we can move on. Now is the moment in our show where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? Thanks, Steve. We are also sponsored this week by The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, the new documentary series from HBO. Four decades, three murders, and one very rich man who refused to speak until now. The Jinx is filmmaker Andrew Jarecki's six-part examination of Robert Durst, the reclusive millionaire at the heart of three murders. It exposes long-buried information discovered during their seven-year investigation of a series of unsolved crimes. And it was made with the cooperation of Durst, who has consistently maintained his innocence and remains a free man today. The Jinx comes from Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, the Oscar nominees behind Capturing the Freedmans, which was a totally fascinating documentary uh, about guilt and innocence. And Durst came to know Jarecki after the release of his feature film, All Good Things, which was a fictional account of Durst's life. So this is Jarecki returning again to a a fascinating and, and troubling story. Again, that's The Jinx, The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst, which airs Sundays at 8, only on HBO. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. 
Well, according to uh, BuzzFeed, the dress drew more visitors to their site at one time than anything ever had ever before. I'm talking now, of course, of the dress that broke the internet last week. It appears to some people to be gold and white and to other people to be blue and black. And uh, it created an optical illusion that revealed to us how subjective color perception can be. Julia, I have to admit, I have almost nothing to say about this. Take it away, please. Uh, Well, no, first of all, which color did you see it as, Steve? That's obviously the first thing we have to say. But this is the thing I don't understand. It just depended on which photograph you looked no, at. No, I mean, we're, I, no, it so didn't. The thing that was fascinating people... is that people would be looking at the exact same photograph. This happened to my husband and me. We were looking at the same photograph on the same phone. And he was like, oh, wow, look at that blue and black dress. And I was like, that is a white and gold dress. And that moment of perceptual disagreement was crazy. I mean, it's sort of like the old stoner phenomenon of like, but what if my blue isn't the same as your blue? You know, like... It's very, very, very strange to look at the exact same photograph as your husband and have him tell you it's a wildly different thing. Right. And And unlike many visual sort of perceptual tricks, it's not something that you can switch back and forth between two shapes or or two colors depending on how you look at it. Right. It really is just something that is in the subjective eyeballs of the viewer. Something. I mean, the science remains somewhat debated and we can get into that in a moment. But it was different than like. You know, the is this a vase or two faces? And you can kind of talk. Well, there actually were some people who were switchers who were able to see the photograph different ways at different times. Um, but most people seem to see it one way or the other. So, Dana, which way did you see it? I saw it as white and gold, but I haven't had the experience of looking at it with somebody who didn't. So Wait, so we're all white and golders on this show? Yeah, maybe? what mm-hmm. is that supposed to mean? Is that like an astrological type? That... I think it's slightly more common. I've also heard that young people are more likely to see this blue and black. And also that uh, also that men are more likely to see it as blue and black. I'm just going to check the booth to see if we can get any disagreement in this room. Do we have any blue and blackers? You guys both white and gold? This is an entirely white and gold production? All right. Well, we'll have to see what uh, what that means, according to our listeners. You guys can come on the Facebook page and tell us how the white and goldness of our perception explains everything about this show. But, you know, so subsequent to the arrival on the viral scene of this electrifying divisive photo, uh, the internet went bananas. And this BuzzFeed post accrued, you know, almost more hits than anything they've ever done. Many, many places, including Slate, did various follow-on posts trying to explain or understand the science of it uh, and the viral phenomenon of it and why it was such a success and which celebrities saw what colors. And, you know, it was like a global internet cataclysm. Kim and Kanye were divided, just like you and your husband. Kim and Kanye are like my and my husband in many, many ways. (laughs) But our division on the color of the dress was just one. Um, You know, so I think in the aftermath of this this event, and it really was a kind of global internet event, there are a set of questions that we can dig into. You know, one is the science, what was going on in this picture. The other is, and, and maybe more interesting for us, what does the dress represent? Does this represent the return of the old good internet, the old good internet that prizes the weird and the corners of human existence and uh, kind of harmless scientific inquiry and disagreement? Or is this the new bad internet? Is this the internet that chases inanities at the expense of news information and everything that has made um, media and communication great and valuable over the years? So let's start there. Good old internet or bad new internet? Dana. 
Is it blue or black? Is it white or gold? Well, wait, so what's the good old internet again? The good old internet is just all of us gathering around the, the virtual hearth and sharing an experience. Is that the idea, that because it involves actual physical presence and sort of sharing your perception with someone else that it's more communitarian than I, just sending, like, bunny photos around? I think it's more that it's that it was unusual, that it was weird, that it was the sort of thing that wouldn't have been surfaced necessarily by normal media channels in the olden days, that it got into, like, the mysteries of human existence and perception and science. I mean, it. the thing that was interesting about it when it first went around is that the, the initial round of phone calls to scientists who are aware of this kind of thing wasn't like, oh, yeah, that's a classic case of blah. You know, we've seen this a hundred times. Here's what's happening. Even the experts on optical phenomena seem to be like, whoa, that is that is striking. That is an unusual photo. That is a really unusual optical occurrence to have one image that can be read so differently by different people. Um and this is a dicey question because we're not, you know, optical specialists, but what would make it more dicey than any other photo? Did it have to do with the digitalness of the photo? And I don't think we've yet seen a satisfying explanation of why this particular image has generated this result. We've seen explanations of what was happening. And the theory, which I can recap here briefly, was is basically that, you know, your uh, part of it, the cognition of sight is that it's your brain interpreting the images that hit your retina in different ways. And your brain is constantly doing a set of calculations around how to perceive color based on like what the assumed light source is and what assumptions are about how light sources operate are. Um, so that there's a lot of kind of subtle adjustment and calculation in your brain as it's interpreting signals. I think the easiest way to imagine this is, you know, those red light bulbs that exist sometimes. And when you're in a room with just a red light bulb, you it's hard to tell what color everything is. You can kind of sort of tell the difference between an orange and a pink and a blue and a green. But your mind has to kind of you can almost feel the work your brain is doing to like calculate to extract the inner color info from away from the light source. Um, so the theory is that basically uh, we have different internal calculus for, for that. And something about the composition and colors of this image made it possible to read in two very different ways. So there's some way in which the white and golders brains are interpreting the photo to suggest a light source that would mean the underlying colors were white and gold and the blue and blackers a different kind of light source that would make it read as blue and black. That's as best as I understand it um, from the explanations I've read. Perhaps there's been more. I don't think there's been a really clear explanation of why this photo has generated such a divergent result. Um, and the dress itself is blue and black. The blue and blackers are correct. Like, it's for sale online. You can see other photos of it that don't have this splitting effect, and it is a blue and black dress. So this was a genuine scientific unusuality, like a divergence, a, a weirdness in the, in the, a blip in the matrix or whatever. And it freaked people out. And there's this kind of a sense of awe and wonder at the corners of existence that I think some people think was a hallmark of the old good internet. And some people held this up as an example of that. Yeah, something that made me think of is the book that I just endorsed the other week on the show, Catherine Schultz's Being Wrong, which has a lot of moments of descriptions of scientific experiments about perception and, you know, how strongly people hold on to ideas about their visual perception, even when they're they're proven wrong. You know, and just sort of how when something seems to flow from your own five senses, there's almost nothing that can convince you that it's, it's, it is not factually that way in the world. Right. All right, Steve, well, can I get a taker from you for new bad internet? Can you engage in some hand-wringing about the dress or at least address the <laughs> hand-wringers? Uh, so the, what the hand-wringing was, can you believe that, you know, in in a violent, war-torn, unjust, unequal world, we all spent this much time concentrating on 
a stupid uh, optical illusion trick. I think a so. Trump lawyer. That, seems, that seems like a fair summary. Yeah. Don't feel too sorry for me because <laughs> I, I looked at the dress. I smoked six cigarettes. I stared out at the snowpack, and then the Times Magazine paid me a shit ton of money to write ten thousand words about the experience. So fuck y'all. I would like to I, read I, Mouse Guard on the dress. I, I, I've got they, they they had to go they had to go deep into the bench. The, they're hiring me to do the white guy solipsist. I really like how all of our topics this week are about deep loneliness, right? It's the loneliness of being the last man alive, except for Kristen Shaw. You're going to think, okay, so you're never going to believe me, but it actually is true. One of the reasons I didn't uh, latch onto the dress phenomenon is over the weekend, I was reading a book by John Searle, my new philosophical hero called, his new book is called Seeing Things As They Are. And it's all about how we constitute a raw phenomenological uh, visual field into something like a world of, you know, cause and effect. And, and uh, you know, we credit the existence of an external world uh, as, as mind independent, even though we can only know it mentally. Uh, and, and there are just passages in that book that apply so rigorously and so interestingly to the phenomenon of people seeing something differently that I couldn't pry myself away from um, the book to the uh, trivial online phenomenon. No. You've got to text John Searle a picture of the dress and see what he sees. <laughs> I mean, it would be the all-time greatest slate piece to get John Searle to write about how this relates to his new book. But um, I mean, ultimately, anyway. if you're going to get philosophical, it is kind of a question of theory of mind, right? I mean, it's the impossibility of getting into anyone else's brain and seeing what they see. And the idea that like our perceptual apparatuses are are kind of locked inside these fortresses of our heads and we can't well, yeah, know and, about anyone and, else's. Exactly. And what's interesting is that there is, it, it clearly what this demonstrates is that there is some middle point between the total raw phenomenology of seeing something and perceiving it and, and consciously interpreting it uh, and placing it into context. Like, so he gives this example of, um, uh, you know, you see a car and if the car is not your car, you've never seen the car before. It's pretty much raw phenomenology. Uh, um, you know, whereas if it's your car, you see it as a make a model, the, you know, an encumbrance, uh, you know, you bring all of your experience of it as a, as, as a vehicle to the, I mean, to the, to the degree that, that you don't even think of it in raw phenomenological terms, right? You think of it only in, in kind of personal and semantic, uh, semantic terms. But, um, but what's interesting about the dress is that there seems to be something in between those two things, which is that the mind will perceive as raw phenomenology, a color as a specific color, by interpreting it in relation to what the mind unconsciously believes its lighting is, therefore relative to what other uh, uh, facts are present in a photograph. So these other optical illusions that went around on the internet demonstrate this even more starkly uh, and don't require passing a, a, a computer around because, so for example, there's the spiral, which appears to have one swirl that's, I believe, green and one that's blue. And you're convinced that these are completely two separate colors. But in fact, it is totally interpretive, the exact same color. And it's totally interpretive relative to the other colors that surround it. So apparently unconsciously or you know, kind of quasi-neurobiologically, we make these interpretive, I mean, there can only be kind of called interpretive adjustments in order to come up with what feels totally to us to be a perception of an objective mind independent reality. And I think that did blow people's minds. 
Yeah, and I, I guess I would just say I'm like pro crazy phenomena blowing people's minds. I'm not, I'm not against that. And I feel like the fact that the internet has become a finely tuned mechanism that, uh, you know, that BuzzFeed is, was well poised to kind of find this and present it to the world and then capitalize on how, cap- how much it captivated the world, like, that's fine. You know, that's not that's not all that BuzzFeed does. It's not all that the Internet does. It's not all that media does. And um, it was kind of delightful to have a, a trippy global experience with the the world community of dress lookers. At any rate, if you're going to do scolding finger wagging about, you know, people passing silly things around on the Internet or an infinite variety of things and cat pictures and, you know, men falling onto cactus videos that you can throw up your hands about and get outraged about. This this dress phenomenon seems like, as you say, Julia, one of the more highbrow, if anything, of the of the Internet memes. Did you do it with your family? No, but now I want to. Okay. I, I also I, looked I at it in guys... a car on a phone by myself. And so I, I, I sort of missed out on the, the, the whole. Can clap. I please give you guys the assignment of showing the photo to your families and reporting back next week yeah steve does not accept the assignment all right well we'll see (laughs) i'm just going to email kothi after the show i feel like i can get this to happen (laughs) steve's norwegian enemy is so great that he couldn't possibly lift his phone up to show his family a picture of the dress (laughs) oh i never finished my thought about the fundamental loneliness of our show but right it's alone at the end of the world it's alone uh alone in of a uh, Hampton Inn in in uh, Newfoundland, and then it's like alone in our, you know, cosmologically particular analysis of color. We're all so alone, Dana. Uh, all right. Well, demonstrated that a certain degree of Norwegian anime is appropriate to all of experience because we're all uh, imprisoned within our own skulls inexorably. That's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Let us know what color you thought the dress was. Come to Facebook.com slash Culture Fest. All right. Now is the moment in our show where we endorse. Dana, what do you have? Uh, Yes, my endorsement this week, because we didn't in any way on this show, although we talked about it, we ended up not doing a segment on the passing of Leonard Nimoy, which I'm sure many people like me were very, very saddened by, those of us who grew up with the original Star Trek series and and love it dearly. And so I'm going to endorse something Star Trek related. It's this great book called Inside Star Trek, The Real Story. Um, It's by by Herbert Salo and Robert H. Justman, who were two of the producers of the original series that ran 66 to 69. And it was recommended to me by a fellow Trek fan. And I'm just, I'm so glad I have this book. It's more of a sort of less of a book you read straight through. It's sort of an oral history. It's got production memos and, you know, photos of the sets being built and anecdotes about the casting. And essentially, if you're a Star Trek fan and you really want to get into some sort of scholarly backstage, um, not gossip exactly, but just production history, then uh, this is the book to start with, with great illustrations and uh, and um, inserts throughout. So Inside Star Trek, The Real Story by Herbert Salau and Robert H. Justman. That sounds totally cool. awesome. Uh, All right, uh, Julia, what do you have? Well, my endorsement this week is inspired by uh, today's version of the dress, today's viral phenomenon, which is not quite dress level. Uh, But there's a photo circulating on the Internet of a weasel riding on the back of a woodpecker. (laughs) (laughs) And... No, that's got social value. <laughs> and Slate has an interview with the photographer and some additional shots. Uh, and I tweeted out our our set of photos, and someone wrote back uh, with a reference to Annie Dillard's essay, Living Like Weasels. And I had totally forgotten about Annie Dillard's essay, Living Like Weasels, but it not only do I love that essay, I think that I may have somewhat melodramatically quoted from it on my high school Facebook page. I hope that no one is in a position to verify this fact. <laughs> 
because <laughs> God knows what else was on there. Um, but I, w- I went back and read it. I found it online this morning, and it remains a wonderful essay. Uh, and I highly commend our listeners to go read it. It's very short. Uh, it, it won't take you longer than it would take you to look at the dress and pass it around to the other members of your household. Um, and it's a really beautifully observed tight and taut piece of writing about an encounter with a weasel and it's beautiful as description it's beautiful as a as a piece of writing that plunges you into a particular scene within nature and it's a beautiful piece of thinking about kind of the existential nature of what it means to be human versus what it means to be animal um Theory of mind again. Theory of mind again, and very, very closely and carefully observed. Dana, I think you would like it better than you liked the Kanowska. (laughs) Well, I love Annie Dillard. I thought I had read everything she'd ever written, but I have not read that weasel's essay. So, well, not only is this essay wonderful, it starts with an anecdote about a weasel that bit an eagle and was carried aloft eagle height. And, and the eagle was found months later with the skull of a weasel embedded in its neck because the weasel never let go. So this internet phenomenon today is not the first known instance of a weasel born aloft by an avian. <laughs> there is at least one prior example, and it was beautifully written about by Annie Dillard, and you should go read it uh, in the wonderful essay, Living Like Weasels. By Can Annie I here confess that Annie Dillard was a, a professor at my undergraduate experience? At Wesleyan University, and um, she surrounded herself with little Dillardettes, um, <laughs> all of whom were supremely nature-sensitive uh, young men and women, um, who exceeded me in sensibility by a factor of about 20,000. And so I developed this completely arbitrary hatred of Annie Dillard based on never having read one syllable of her. So this is an excuse to finally buck up and put it behind me, you know, and... Um, and uh, and read uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, or where where should I start? I'm not sure. Just start with his essay. Start with his essay. And I'm curious, Steve. I'm not a hundred percent. I really think Dana would like it, and I'm not sure you would like it. It's there's a slight. Uh, well, I'm, I I don't want to prejudice you. She's not for, she's uh, not wait, for everyone. Wait a second. Wait a second. I braced myself for the rhetorical haymaker. No, well I I was it. I tried to decide myself if I still liked it today before endorsing it. There's a slight on the noseness about it at the end. Like it it's a it's almost a little bit tidy. It uses this encounter to articulate like a passionate and and firmly felt kind of belief system about how to be in the world that's like uh, maybe sort of unfashionably sincere or something. There's, you know, like I, I, I don't necessarily think that everybody who reads this will, will adore it. But, um, but anyway, it's short enough that you should both read it. Both of you have homework assignments. You have to go home and show the dresses to your family, and mm-hmm. you have to read Annie Dillard's Living Like Weasels. and report back. Yeah, report back. Mm. All right. Well, you two have to read all of Knausgard, eighty thousand <laughs> words of Knausgard, and then figure out whether you pronounce the K or not. Um, okay. Well, my actual my, my assignment to the listening audience of the show, however, is much shorter uh, and uh, easier to comply with. And that's uh, let me begin by saying that Slate went out and did something eminently to its own credit, which is it hired a young writer named Leon Nafak. Um, and uh, I, I've been a fan of his for a while now. He wrote for the Boston Globe Idea section. He has a piece in this month's, uh, or this quarter's issue of N Plus One magazine called The Next Next Level about an acquaintance of his from, I believe, suburban Detroit. Um, am I right about that? I'll have to look. I think it is. Um, who persists in attempting to be a white rapper long beyond the point anyone else would have probably 
packed it up and, and gone home and become a, you know, a, a, a dentist or a, um, a fill in the blank, an accountant. And, um, uh, but he doesn't and he persists in it and, and he, his, he goes by the name Juicebox and he creates a whole persona, which is to my mind sort of part Beastie Boys, part David Brent, part Crispin Glover. I mean, this kind of crazy <laughs> out there persona that he just can't let go of and it almost sort of takes a hold of him and he rides it to its kind of illogical conclusion. And it's just a beautiful essay about this moment where most creative people, you know, realize they're not going to be great enough to pursue something for the entirety of their lives in their mid to late 20s, sometimes, sometimes earlier, sometimes later, but somewhere between, let's say, 18 and 34, somewhere in there, you, many of us decide, I'm going to have to be this lesser version, you know, of myself, uh, and you resign yourself to it and, and, and move on with life. And he, ref- the, I think the point of the piece is that this is someone who refused that and his music is kind of becomes about that in a way. And then he does in fact kind of, uh, um, make it to the next, next level because of this persistence. And it's just a beautiful piece of writing and it's highly, highly recommended. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply, and that's P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. Uh,